This morning we are returning to the book of Luke. Uh, if you've been with us a bit, uh, we are in Luke chapter 4. Uh, really, we're doing a series just through Luke 3 and 4 called Preparing the Way. Uh, we are uh, looking at the time of preparation before Jesus begins his official ministry. And so we're kind of nearing the end of, of Luke 4, because uh, it's not very long. But uh, these verses look at the temptation of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke 4, verses uh, 1 to 13. And given that our topic is temptation, I thought I would begin by simply asking you, you know, when was the last time that you were really uh, tempted? I don't mean a small temptation, like taking an extra piece of pie. Everyone knows that's fine. You can just have more pie. It's all right. But I mean a real temptation, a temptation where you were tempted to go against what you know to be right, to do something that, that seemed right, but is, is really not right at all. Something that seemed right in the moment, but taking a step back, you know this is actually not a good thing. Uh, for example, it, it sure seems like a good idea to, to tear a strip off the young referee who has missed a call at your daughter's soccer game. That feels right. He missed it offside and they just scored and my daughter's in tears and so I'm going to make the 14-year-old cry. That, that seems good, but we all know in the light of day, it's not good. You embarrass yourself, you embarrass your daughter, it's, it's not right. That's the whole thing about temptation. It's, it's being tempted to do things that you know are not right, and yet they feel right in the moment. Temptation is just part of being human. Whether you're part of the church or not, a Christian or not, we, we all are tempted to do things that are, go against our conscience at certain moments in time. Now the Bible gives us some uh, insight into why this is. One of the reasons, the Bible just makes very clear that we have a corrupt nature. We have a sinful nature. It, it means, in part, that it's difficult for us to know what's truly right and truly wrong. And so there are times when we, we step into something thinking that, oh, this seems like a good idea, but, but really it's not. Another thing the Bible makes clear is that temptation is, is also part of an ongoing aggression, on the part of the devil towards all of the works of God in the world. That's what we're going to see specifically in our text, because it's the devil, it's Satan, who is tempting Jesus. So we need to simply state, biblically speaking, in terms of what is real, the devil is real. God is real, angels are real, these are spiritual beings. And, and here we see that the devil is very angry. He may not seem angry exactly in our passage, but, but what we know of the devil is that he was once an angel, and that he wanted to claim the throne of heaven. And so there was a battle. He was cast out of heaven. He was beaten there. And the Bible tells us that uh, at the end, when Jesus returns, he will be beaten once and for all. And so we're kind of in this in-between time. And the devil is, is really angry. He, he's aggressive towards what God is doing. He's, he's kind of like, uh, like a hockey team. It's the third period. They're down by four goals. At a certain point... It's not about winning anymore. It's just about how much havoc they can cause on the ice before the final buzzer, right? So there's a lot of fights. The penalty box fills up. It's kind of like that. We see that the devil is intent on disrupting the things of God. Uh, he scored a major blow in the Garden of Eden. He successfully tempted Adam and Eve into sin, thereby, in his mind, totally ruining whatever plans God had for humankind. And now there is, uh, in a real sense, a new Adam walking the earth. We saw that last week, that, that Jesus is really the, the second Adam. 
He is there to do the will of God. And so Satan, not surprisingly, he, he goes on the offensive. It's kind of a preemptive strike before Jesus begins his ministry. And so he comes and he, his goal is the same as it was in the garden. He wants to tempt Jesus into sin. And so this is a confrontation of epic proportions. It's kind of a rematch. Jesus has seen, they've seen each other before. But here, the stakes are enormous for us. And in this passage, we gain insight into the, just the nature of temptation. We see how it is that we can hope to resist the devil. And we also see uh, how it is that Jesus is our hope as the only one who fully and completely resisted every temptation that came his way. So we're going to look into the word of God. Uh, as I said, chapter 4, starting in verse 1, and uh, read through and see what God has for us this morning. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord, your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and... On their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. It's God's word to us this morning. Uh, Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that as we come here, uh, we come not to hear the wisdom of man, but to hear the wisdom of God. And we thank you, Lord, that, that you loved us enough to give us everything that we need to walk in faithfulness. And Lord, I pray that through this text, uh, you would indeed uh, grow us in faith. I pray, Lord, you would, you would help us to see ourselves better as human beings and, and Jesus to understand you better. And I pray, God, that in this, uh, you would use me to be helpful, Lord, in spite of my own failings. And God, that uh, we would be built up as, as a church. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are three temptations, and we're going to look at each one in turn. Uh, I'm going to kind of summarize each temptation with kind of a subtitle. So the first one, first temptation, stone into bread. Here I see the temptation to live by taking things into your own hands. Now the setup for this uh, is is in verses 1 and 2. It says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. So if you skip back earlier in 3, you'll see he was just baptized at the Jordan River. So this is kind of the next thing that happens apart from the genealogy that was inserted. And he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was was very hungry. So a couple things just as we begin. Uh, Number one, uh, you'll notice that it's the Spirit of God that leads Jesus into the wilderness and in the wilderness. Which is very helpful for us because I think we often have the feeling that when we're in a time of temptation... When we're in a time of trial, that uh, either we are far from God or God is far from us. But what we see here in scripture is that 
that if we are following the Lord, the path along which he leads us, we will come across temptation and that God will be with us. That especially if you're believers, the spirit of God will be within you. And so you are not alone, that God is there to help you through the the difficult time, through the temptation. The second thing we see is, is really a reminder that Jesus is enduring this temptation as a genuine human being. Uh, we saw that last week in the genealogy, which was really testifying to the fact that Jesus was fully human. Uh, we know from scripture that, that in the incarnation, in him coming to earth, that he is fully human and fully God. But here in his time as a human being, he is simply not using his powers as the son of God. And so when he goes to this temptation, he is, he is genuinely human, which means when it says he was hungry, he was really hungry. I mean, how do you feel when you miss a meal or like two, if you're, you're grumpy, aren't you? Don't you get hangry? I get really, I get really hangry. I get, I'm like, I need to eat. Sometimes you may have fasted for a couple of days. This fast was for six weeks, which means if we started today, we wouldn't eat again until July 8th, which is incredible. Like the month after next, that's that's where Jesus was physically, which means you know that, that mentally, emotionally, psychologically, he was in dire straits in every aspect of his being. That he was, if we had come across someone like this, he would be immediately medevac to the hospital. He'd be in the ER, he'd be in ICU, he'd be on fluids. He really is in tough shape. And of course, this is when the devil comes to, to put his pressure on. Now you notice that the devil has actually been tempting him all the way along. But we're given kind of the climax, kind of the end of all that temptation, the culmination. And uh, the first temptation is this in verse three, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, notice the question, command this stone to become bread. Now, even though the particulars here have to do with physical sustenance, uh, the truth is that this is really a spiritual temptation. In fact, all temptations at their heart have a spiritual component because really what they're about is is who do you trust? Who do you hope in? Who are you going to obey? That's in every temptation that the big questions, the deep questions that are on our heart. We, if you're a believer, say, you know, I I believe God. I want to do things God's way until a temptation comes about. Like, for example, maybe you're in construction and and you notice a way that you could cut corners on a certain project to, to lower the quality, but no one really noticed. And you could charge the same amount. It's not what's been agreed to, but you see this possibility. Well, what's going on there? Well, in part, it's, it's about finances. It's about, well, I, I could get this much more money from this job. But really, really the question is, where do you put your hope to be really blessed in your life? Is it in the money that you could get, no matter how you get it? Or is it in following the ways of God? Because that's the question. I have this way, which would honor the Lord, which would be honest. Or I have this way, which would be dishonest, but I'd get more money. Where is it that my hope lies? That's always the issue when it comes to a temptation. In this case, for Jesus, the question was, will, will he be faithful to God the Father? He had come to earth to do the will of the Father. He makes that very clear. He made a plan with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, before the foundation of the world, and now he's coming to live it out. And part of his role was to be a human being, a genuine human being, for the whole time that he is here on earth. And so here, though, we have an opportunity for him. 
Because as a human being, he, he's starving. He's dying. And so the, the opportunity that Satan puts before him is, well, well, you could take care of that. The temptation is for him to use his divine powers to, to simply make this stone into bread. And this would have been especially agonizing, not just because of how he feels, because of the, the agony and the, you know, the, the hunger pangs, but because he knows that it would take, I mean, it would take a fraction of a second for Jesus to dip into his divine powers and change that stone into bread and sustain himself. It would be a momentary thing, but the consequences would be eternal. Because if he did that, there would no longer be any perfect human righteousness for him to pass on to us. He would no longer be able to be the perfect sacrifice on the cross for us as a human being. There would be no atonement for sin. So the temptation of Satan was, was really for him to deviate from the will of God. And, and the things that Satan is leading him to believe are, are assumptions and conclusions about God the Father. What he's saying is, look, you're not being provided for. If you are the son of God, notice the question, just at the, the baptism, if, you're, if you know, God spoke down from heaven and said, this is my son with whom I am pleased. And now Satan says, look, if, if you are the son of God, then, then why wouldn't you do this? Because if you're the son of God, then, then clearly God is, I mean, he's abandoned you. He's not caring for you. And if you're the son of God, you have the power. So, so why wouldn't you conclude that the best thing in this situation would be for you to step in, for you to take the situation into your own hands and to provide for yourself? This is a challenge for us, isn't it? Don't we often find ourselves in situations where we are very tempted to go, to go around or over top or underneath the word of God because there is something that God has not yet provided for us? Something that we, we clearly need, that everyone would agree we, we need this here, this thing, and God's not doing it, so the temptation is, well, maybe I should step in. Maybe I should, I should deviate from what God says is right so that I can take care of things. I mean, we say that we trust in the word of God until until we have to go without something that, that we really feel like we need. And here we're not even talking about something that's evil. We're talking about a good thing. Food is a good thing. Food is something that, that in a sense, Jesus would have every right to expect. And yet God in his wisdom has led him to a place where there is no food. He's not providing it yet for his son. There's lots of things like that in our life. I mean, just think of marriage. Marriage is a good thing. The Bible says singleness is also a good thing, but we tend to lean, many of us, towards marriage, and and we desire it. And yet there are many times in which God does not provide a spouse for us. And the temptation is for us to take things into our own hands. For someone to say in that position, look, Lord, I've been waiting for a long time, and and I see in your word that you say that, that Christians should really only marry other Christians. Because it's, it's in keeping with, we both have the same views on life, the same hopes on life. It's, it's your wisdom and your command. And I've been doing that, but there isn't a godly man or a godly woman that you've provided. So there's this guy at work. And uh, he seems really into me. And, and we get along well. And, you know, I think maybe he went to church back when he was a kid. I don't really think he's a believer, but Lord, you, you haven't provided. And so I, I feel very tempted, right, to take things into my own hands to see where this relationship leads. 
This is always the way it is with us. That God in his wisdom does not provide certain things. And yet we are so very tempted to say, well, God, if you're not going to do that, I'll take things in my own hands. But see, the question is not really about hunger or about loneliness. The question is, whose hands do you trust to bring ultimate good into your life? I mean, who, who do you want holding your ultimate joy? Is it the God of the universe or, or is it your hands? Do you really think from looking at your track record that you will be successful in bringing ultimate good into your life? In the light of day, it seems very clear. Of, of course, it's God. He created the universe. Of course, I want to follow him. But in the moment, man, it's so easy to think that if, if I see what I could do, Jesus knows he could do it in the blink of an eye. That would be best. And yet it's not best in the long term. And Jesus knows this. So here's his response. It cuts to the core of Satan's deception. In verse 4, Jesus answered him. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And this is a quote from Deuteronomy 8.3, in which what's being recounted are the events when God leads his people into the wilderness for 40 years to wander there. Notice the parallel, 40 days in the wilderness, 40 years in the wilderness. Also at that time, it's when God, God's people are tempted to doubt his loving care. They're in a place with no food. And yet God miraculously provides food for them. And here's what it says in verse 3 of Deuteronomy 8. <clears throat> and he, that's God, and God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna. Manna is like this bread stuff that would fall from the sky. Manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know the, that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So the situation here is that God, God had this, this manna fall from heaven, and so they would be sustained every day. But they couldn't save the manna from one day to the next. And so the, the instruction, the temptation was, where was their hope? They instinctively, sinfully at first gathered up the manna, and it would rot every night. And the lesson was, look, who are you going to trust in? Are you going to trust the bread that God provides or are you going to trust his words? Because what God made very clear to his people is, is I'm your God. You are my people. I'm going to care for you. I'm, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to make you prosper. And yet the people of God very easily, very quickly would, would doubt his loving care. And that's the same thing that Satan is leading Jesus to do here. The same thing that, that we do. We, we've heard if you look through Jesus' words in the New Testament, the same sort of thing. God loves you. God loves you more than the birds of the air, the flowers of the field. He's going to care for you. Don't be anxious about anything in your life. And yet we get anxious. I mean, that's really what I think the question for us is here in this part of the text is, is how do we live? Do we live by bread alone? Meaning, are we only at peace? Are we only satisfied when we can see something? When we, we have that which we need from God? Or are we at peace because of what God's promises say? I mean, just think in your own life. Are, are you quick to take things into your own hands because you're worried that God is not going to do anything about it? Even if it means going against God's word. But, but it just feels, it feels better. It feels, feels more comfortable. Or, or do you lean hard on the promises of God? Do you live by his word? And are you confident in his mighty hands? 
that, that he not only desires what's best for you, he will bring it to, to happen in his good timing. See, with Jesus, he, he knows right away. We are to live by the word of God. And so he answers the first temptation. The second one is this. The crown without the cross. Uh, the temptation to live by comfortable expediency. Uh, we see this in verses 5 and 7. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now notice that the diabolical nature of this temptation is that Satan is offering Jesus something that he has every right to receive. Jesus is the son of God. He is the rightful ruler over all the kingdoms of the world. That's not the question. The question is, how will he receive it? Will it be God's way or will it be another way? Satan's way. In this case, uh, we see that Satan is offering him a way to take on that crown that is much easier and and much much faster. That's the comfortable expediency that that I said there. We, We like that. Don't we like things that are quick and easy? So much better. In this case, doing this would have meant that Jesus claims rulership over all these kingdoms without going to the cross. It would be immediate. It would be easy. It would be pain-free. God's way would be a lot more difficult. God's way was another three years of ministry on earth, which led to a, a painful death on the cross, which led to a resurrection, yes, but then further waiting in heaven before he would come back to finally claim the throne. It seems harder. It is harder. A lot less comfortable. Pain and trial leads that way. But the end of it is so much greater. Because that way is to the cross, which brings redemption to all mankind. To all those who have faith in Jesus, which means greater glory for God. And so we could look at this and say, I mean, this, this seems like a no-brainer, right? I mean, especially since it's Satan is the one who's giving the offer. Don't you kind of feel sometimes like, like a... Obviously, Satan's trying to mess with you. He's Satan, right? It feels a bit like those guys at the, uh, at the carnival, you know, the carnies that have all those booths set up. And they're like, come on, come on. You can win this giant dinosaur, stuffed animal for, for your child. It's just 10 bucks for three throws of the ball. Look, anyone can hit it over. And you, you know it's rigged. <laughs> of course, anyone who steps up there, you're like, you're going to lose your money. You're just giving the money. Walk away. You know that it's rigged. And so you think, well, why would you even go over there? Jesus, I mean, just, just say no. Anyone would say no. It's an easy one, except it's not as easy as we think. I mean, we have this idea in our mind that that Satan, were we to encounter him, would be a a, a greasy, pointy-eared guy with yellow teeth, right, beckoning us with false promises. Of course, we say no to that. That's easy. I've never, why would I, you know, go with the temptation of the devil? But see, the Bible also tells us that Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light, that he's... It's not so obvious when you're in the midst of the temptation. I mean, when you, when you are in the midst of Satan's lies, when he is leading you towards something that you find very attractive or very enticing, it's, it's a real temptation. And for Jesus, this would have been a real temptation. I mean, just Im- imagine the grandeur of that moment to see all the kingdoms of the world, from ancient Babylon to the Egyptian pyramids to, to Times Square to Monaco, to whatever they're going to build in the future here on earth, all of those kingdoms laid out before him. And all he needs to do is just bow the knee to Satan for one moment. I mean, it it really would have been enticing. But of course, 
Of course, Jesus sees through. And I want you to notice how it is that he rejects this. Verse 8, Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now, the practical thing that I think is helpful for us is that he doesn't spend any time thinking this over. Do you notice that? He, does, he doesn't mull it over a bit. Be like, mm, maybe. He doesn't consider it even. He closes the door completely. I think this is where we oftentimes get into trouble. Right? We, we know certain things. We have certain convictions biblically. And, and, and we know that we're going to follow God's word. And yet something comes up. An idea or a suggestion from someone else. Something that we know is wrong. Or we know it will lead immediately to sin. And yet, and this is the key, we don't reject it completely. We reject it, but kind of file away the idea in the back of our mind somewhere. And not surprisingly, it pops up again. And then we're thinking about it again. We're considering. Man, you know that, you know that deal that was proposed to me that is quite clearly unethical. And I, I don't feel like I can do it, but... You know, now that I think about it a bit, boy, that would be really good financially. I mean, everywhere at the office, if I could sign a deal like that, that would look really, really good. And you start to think about this thing that you, you know is not right. And as you consider it, it gains traction in your heart. See, this is where the desires of our heart become coupled with the temptations of the devil and we get into real problems. Uh, we see this in the book of James. Uh, James 1.14, in speaking about us and temptation, says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. See, it makes the connection. We, we, we fail to make the connection. We sometimes see it right away. That's not a good idea. But then as we begin to mull it over, the, the destruction, the death, the sin part, it kinda, it, it's vague in our mind. And the benefits loom large. And this bad idea begins to carry weight in our heart and in our mind. And it leads us into sin. It leads us further into temptation. I mean, just imagine if Jesus had, had said no, but not fully. Meaning he had kept this image in the back of his mind throughout his ministry. Imagine if through all the difficulties, all the rejection, all the times he's frustrated with the disciples, that he had, he had remembered that image that Satan had shown him. All the kingdoms of the world with all, all this trouble. I mean, what would he have prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane as the cross was, was right before him? Would he have prayed, Father, not, not my will but yours be done? If he had been sowing seeds of self-preservation and ease and comfort? I mean, isn't this how we get into trouble? That there are certain things that that all of a sudden we begin to realize, man, that would just be so much better financially for me. That would be so much easier socially. That relationally, that would, that would, man, if I could do that, I know there's some things that I had reservations about, but as I begin to think about it, boy, this seems like maybe not such a bad idea. As we begin to think about it more and more and more, it, it has greater weight on our heart. See, Jesus, he doesn't think about it. Because he knows right away that at its heart, that is idolatry. It's clear cut. For him to bow the knee to Satan would be to break the, the final, the greatest commandment. And so he closes the door completely. And what we need to realize is that for us to follow the Lord, 
if you're a believer here and your desire is to follow God, it will mean a life that is harder and not as comfortable. It will mean a life of sacrifice. That's really what Jesus is saying. Saying, I see that, but I reject it. Because this road, the road that is more difficult, the road that involves more pain is a better road. Because it's the road that God is leading me on. And it leads to greater blessing and joy for for more people. And even if you can't see over the horizon, the fact that God is leading you there, that is the key. That is the key for each one of us, the, the decision we have to make. Do I really believe what God is telling me? And that his word is true, or should I keep thinking about this thing that contradicts it? See, Jesus knew that there would be no ultimate value in a crown given by the hand of Satan, no matter how comfortable the road to it would be. And see, we need the same clarity and decisiveness in our own lives for those things that come our way that we, that we can see really clearly. No, that's, that's something that will lead me into sin, that it needs to be rejected completely and to move on, to take every thought in our mind captive for Christ, to reject it and to move on without letting it simmer, letting it percolate because that's what leads us into greater sin. Okay, the third thing, third temptation, putting God to the test. The temptation to live by sight rather than by faith. So here the final temptation that Satan has, uh, starting in verse 9. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, I'm not sure about you, but like I've read this passage before, I've always thought that this was the lamest temptation. Do you know what I mean? Because mostly because why would you ever think it's a good idea to throw yourself from a building? I never understood. Like, why would Jesus even think this is a good idea? That of course he's not going to do that. No one would do that. Except as I studied a bit more, uh, I realized they're actually, I mean, this, this would have been tempting for a few reasons that uh, may not be true for us, but certainly were true for Jesus. Uh, One of them is that for Jesus to do this, if he were to throw himself from this building and God were to save him, this would be an amazing public declaration of his role as the Messiah. Uh, There's even some uh, Jewish texts that speak about the Messiah coming and standing on the, the temple roof. And so this would have been, I mean, what a great way to start your ministry, to have everyone talking about the fact that, that you leapt and God saved you, and man, God must really be with him. So that would have been something that would be tempting, that idea. But also notice that the tactics that Satan uses are different here. In the first two, he was tempting Jesus to go against the word of God. Here, it's Satan who is quoting scripture, but he's twisting it. So what he quotes is Psalm 91. That's those two passages you saw there. And Psalm 91 is all about God's promise uh, to protect and care for the faithful. And so there's the parts there. He will command his angels concerning you, basically saying that God, God is going to care for those who are faithful. So the, the temptation here that Satan is leading Jesus to start thinking is, is, look, you're clearly, you're faithful, right? I mean, Satan says, if you are the son of God, right? If that's your connection with the father, then if you were to throw yourself, of course, he's going to catch you. Of course, he's going he's gonna to save you. That will show everyone your connection to the Father. It will be in keeping with the word of God because, I mean, you just said, we're to live by the word of God, right? But he's twisting things. Because Psalm 91 is not, not giving us the, the excuse or really the impetus to test God in this way. 
what it's doing is, is simply outlining the promises that God has for us in our lives. For Jesus to jump would be to invert the proper order of things. He, as the Son, has come to do the Father's will. The Father was not leading him to throw himself from a building. That would have been his own, his own idea, his own plan. For Jesus to live by the Father's will means to live by faith, to trust him and follow his leading, the leading of the Spirit. And faith means trusting the character of God, the promises of God, to trust that he will bring good things into your life, not to say, God, you show me the good things, and then I will follow you. That's, that's inherently a testing of God. And so Jesus, he responds to Satan uh, by basically stating this. Uh, in verse 12, it says, Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And there again, he's quoting Deuteronomy. And this gives us a little more insight into well, what does it mean to test God? Uh, Deuteronomy 6.16 says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Now, Massa, if you were to read something like that, uh, and you had a study Bible, it would be really helpful because you could be like, what's Massa? I don't know what's up with that. Oh, okay. It gives me a connection to Exodus 17, which is the events at Massa. And that was right after God had given the uh, manna from heaven. He'd even given his people quail, uh, bread, and meat to eat. But God leads them into an area where there's no water. And even though God had just saved his people from Egypt, had brought Egypt to its knees, had brought them through the Red Sea miraculously, had provided for them, they look around at a wilderness with no water and they say, God, where's the water? We're thirsty. Have you brought us here to die? And they start to quarrel and complain. And that word quarrel is, is testing. It's like a prosecuting God. Saying, God, we thought that you were going to care for us and there's no water. And so they keep laying on Moses. Moses goes to God and says, they're going to stone me. And God, in his grace, he provides water. Moses strikes a rock with his staff and water flows out and they are provided for. But that event is always looked back to as, as a time of unfaithfulness where they doubted God. And you can see why. Because the attitude of their heart was, God, we'll follow you if you give us what we think we need. If you show us the water, then we'll follow you into the desert. But if not, then, then we're, we're not into this. Right? The attitude was one of you. We want to live by sight rather than by faith. If you show us the, the good stuff, then we'll follow you. It's the same with Jesus. Satan is tempting Jesus to, to think and say, Lord, if, if you show me your power, if you demonstrate to everyone that I am your son, then I will follow your way. I, I, will, I will act out your plan. I will follow your will. But first, first show me the power. This is not trusting God. This, this is testing God. This is an attitude of heart which says, Lord, I'm putting you to the test. If you don't measure up, then, then I'm on my, my own. And I think this is something that also we are tempted to very, very frequently. I mean, just think in your own life. If you're a believer, do you ever feel reluctant to follow the leading of God because he hasn't shown you his master plan for your life? You ever get frustrated? Lord, I, if you could just show me the plan, then I would tell you if it's a good plan, and then I would feel better about following it. There's something wrong there, right? We're saying, God, I have a certain standard, a certain idea of what would be a comfortable life. And if you would just show it to me, then I would be able to trust in that plan. And that's just the problem. 
We're not called to trust in the plan of God. We're called to trust in God himself. But doesn't it feel safer to live by sight? I mean, you can imagine those Israelites in the desert, right? When they saw that water, oh, now I, now I feel at peace. Why? Well, because now, now they have some sense of control, right? They can see how they will be sustained, right? For us, if we could just see what God has in store for us, we would feel better because, because we would be in control. We would know what's coming next. It's really hard to live by faith. But just think logically about this for a moment. Does it make more sense to trust in water or the one who creates water? Does it make more sense to trust in a a plan for our life or the one who creates life? You see, every temptation really does come down to an issue of, of your heart, of what you believe, of what you're hoping in. To live by sight rather than by faith will put you on a path where you are the God of your life. Where you want to see everything, take things into your own hands and make it happen. Rather than by trusting the one who who redeemed you. The one who loves you. God himself. The Bible says that it is impossible to please God without faith. Because in faith we we are putting ourselves in God's hands. Recognizing that that's the best place to be. And for Jesus, I mean, the answer is easy. He knows that he is, he is in the best place in the universe when he is in the hands of God. And for us, we need to ask ourselves that same question. Because with every temptation, we have the opportunity to, to deviate slightly. Sometimes it's a small thing, sometimes it's a big thing. But if the conviction of our heart is, God, you are true, your word is true, then, then our desire should be, Lord, would you help me? Help me to discern what is right and what is wrong. What is a temptation? What what seems great in the moment, but isn't great at all? Lord, would you help me in that? Now, as a way to wrap up this section, there's a couple things we could do. Uh, We could could look more practically. And we've been doing that to a certain extent and sort of pull out the the strategies, the the ways in which we could combat the schemes of the devil. And, And we're told to do that at times. It's a good thing to realize how it is that Satan tempts us, how it is that we can get off course. But I think in this case, that would be to miss the major point. Because there's a bigger point in this passage. I mean, just look at the last verse. Verse 13 says, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Do you see what that says? It says that the devil, that he exhausted all of his temptations... His whole, his whole clip was empty. All the arsenal he had was gone. Every temptation he brought against Jesus, Jesus was victorious. This passage is, is not really about us. It's about Jesus. It's about his victory in the face of every temptation that the devil could bring his way. And the reason that this is better than focusing on us is because in Christ, then, we have a hope that goes beyond all of our resources. I mean, it's, it's good to know the devil's schemes. It's good to know how it is that we get tripped up and, and how we can mentally get on the wrong course. But what we need to realize first and foremost is that it is Jesus who is our righteousness. Jesus who is faithful for us. That because of this event, Jesus could go to the cross and he could atone fully for sin. This means that when we have faith in Jesus, 
We have a hope in he who already conquered all of the sin that we are coming against. And so, and so the hope that you have today, if you can think of these certain things, you know that, man, I'm being tempted to grab hold of that. I'm being tempted to, to stray off here. I'm really wrestling with that temptation. I mean, you should know how it is that you're getting tripped up, but, but you should know more importantly that as you come to Jesus in prayer, as you hope in him, if you know him as Savior and Lord, you already have victory. You are no longer under the condemnation of sin. And that means for however large that temptation looms, you know the one who has already conquered it. And so from that, there is peace that comes. From that, there is genuine spiritual strength. And from that, there will be ultimate victory in your life because Christ has already won the battle. So with that in mind, let's, let's go to prayer and then respond to Jesus for all that he's done for us. Lord God, thank you indeed for, for this passage. Thank you, Jesus, for, for your faithfulness, for your steadfastness. Jesus, we see in you the hope of glory because, Jesus, you resisted all of the schemes of the devil. And, and Jesus, I pray that you would help each one of us to identify those areas in our life where we are engaging still with the temptations of the devil, where our own desires are leading us astray and we aren't realizing it. Or, or more importantly, where we see that we are going astray and yet we don't care enough. Jesus, would you help us? Would you give us the strength to pursue a life of, of righteousness, even though it's uncomfortable? To pursue a, a life that honors you and puts you first, even though it's more difficult and it takes longer to get things done. Jesus, I pray that our, that our chiefest desire would be that of glorifying you more fully. And Lord, that in that, you would, you would heap your grace upon us to know that when we fail, Jesus, you're there to, to pick us up. And when we succeed, we can give you all the glory. And so I pray, Lord, that you would, you would work in us and through us this week. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.